0: This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value at slash altitude go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go Card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go limited time offer the creditor and issue of this card is u.s bank national association pursuant to a license from visa usa inc some restrictions may apply
1: welcome to the special sauce podcast real conversations about food and life hosted by serious eats founder ed levine
2: regardless of where we come from, what our experiences, our backgrounds, we all have to eat. Even if you cannot relate to someone, you can still relate to those feelings you get when you eat food prepared by someone who cares about you. And those things can help you at least start the conversation from a place of some kind of understanding.
0: On this episode of Special Sauce, we talk to Reem Cassis, the thought-provoking author of the Palestinian Table, and her new book, The Arabesque Table. Plus, Kenji gives us some helpful tips about making falafel at home, courtesy of Chef Ainat Admini. It's all coming up on Special Sauce. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by the Serious Eaters at Togu, the knife subscription service. Personally, I have never felt confident sharpening my knives at home, so the idea of every two months someone sending me a chef's knife and a paring knife hand sharpened by Togu co-owner and chef Cyrus Elias seemed like a fine one. Each time you receive your Togu knives, all you have to do is send back the ones you were using free of charge in a safe package Togu supplies. It's kind of like the old Netflix DVD-by-mail deliveries. Plus, you can cancel any time. So if you want to have sharp knives at the ready when you cook, and who doesn't, give togunives.com a try. Mention Special Sauce and get your first two months free. This week in our virtual house is Reem Cassis the author of two terrific books, The Palestinian Table, and the newest one, The Arabesque Table. Welcome to Special Sauce, Reem.
2: Thank you for having me, Ed.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about the food and culture of Palestine and so much more. So why don't we jump right in here? In The Palestinian Table, you talk a lot about what is normally the first question I ask, which is, I have the guests describe what life at their family table was like growing up. This seems like a particularly relevant question for you. So why don't you tell us about that?
2: So it was interesting because I didn't have a single table that I grew up with. There were three. There was the one at home in Jerusalem. There was my maternal grandmother's uh, in a village in the center of the country and my paternal grandmother's at a village in the far north of the country. So those experiences were different in many respects and similar in others. You know, they were different because cuisine is regional. And inevitably, if you live in different parts of the country, bordering different countries yourself, you're going to have different dishes. And also, they were different religions. My father's side of the family is Christian. My mother is is Muslim. So what you would eat there was also different in many respects. But the similarities, which are, I guess, the things that I might focus on more in the book, was the sense of generosity that you feel when you're at any of these tables. You know, it's a table that anyone is welcome at, at any point in time. It wasn't like it is today, where people called and made plans weeks in advance. People would knock on your door and come in, and there would be food to go around for everyone. And it was a very convivial atmosphere. You know, people would cook together, and you would sit and eat, and it wasn't a chore. It was something you spent a long time doing. And those were special moments, but like with many things in life, you don't realize how precious they are until you're far removed from them.
0: Yeah. I think what's interesting about your description is when you hear the word Palestine or Palestinian in the West, you immediately go right to the conflict. Right. Yet every account of life in a Palestinian family people talk about the generosity. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how strangers are made to feel welcome in their homes. Mm -hmm. And so those two notions are seemingly at odds with one another.
2: Seemingly. It's the key word here. You know, it's, Palestinians and Arabs in general tend to be a very generous population. Uh, You know, if you look at Bedouin codes, it used to say even if your enemy comes into your house, you have to host them for three days before you even ask what they're there to do. And those tenets of Arab culture have passed down and continue to exist today. But when you come to the issue of the conflict, and this is what I often say when people talk about the issue of culinary appropriation and I say Palestinians are generous. We don't care if anyone else wants to eat our food and enjoy it. The issue with Israel is a much deeper issue than that. It's about living under an oppressive regime, being an occupied people without access to equal rights, without access to justice. It's never about not wanting to welcome anyone into your home or share your food with them. It's always about an issue that runs much deeper. Mm -hmm. And I think once that issue is resolved, the food will cease to be as contentious as it is now.
0: Yeah. It's such a freighted issue. And you're right. It's like the two issues become conflated because whenever we wrote about Palestinian food or Israeli food on Serious Eats, we'd hear from both sides, oh, well, that's not really an Israeli dish or that's not really a Palestinian dish or that's really a Lebanese dish. And what you're saying is that's not really the point.
2: It's not the point. And if you go far back in history, not even that far back, let's just go up until the Ottoman Empire even. You know, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, they were part of a single geographic entity, and they stretch back to the start of civilization. But We're not going to go that far back. And they share. I mean, it's a similar geography, similar acculturation under Islamic and Arab rule for centuries. Inevitably, we're going to share a lot of the same dishes, a lot of the same ingredients, because we live in the same type of landscape. When it comes to Israel, people do have these very contentious, and rightly so, I would argue, debates. And my new book, and we'll discuss this in a bit, talks all about culinary diffusion and how uh, trade and migration and occupation and colonization, all those things impact food. But with Israel, what's happening is, you know, you have this colonizing power that is willfully denying what they've learned from the indigenous population. And that is the crux of the issue that people sometimes get, don't pay attention to. They start fighting over hummus is mine, hummus is yours. You don't see Lebanese and Syrians and Jordanians and Palestinians arguing over who invented or who owns hummus. I mean, we argue over who makes it better, but (laughs) we don't argue over who invented it.
0: And when you talk about the occupation, and even call it the occupation, it sets off a lot of alarms in a lot of people's minds, at least in this country, probably less so around the world. Have you found that when you discuss it in interviews that you do, that people often have difficulty or know that it's going to be controversial?
2: It depends. Sometimes just saying the word Palestinian is enough for people to call it controversial. Mm -hmm. And that hints at the biggest issue on the table, which is for a lot of Jews and Israelis, they conflate being Jewish with the state of Israel. Right. So you can be a Jew here in the US and still disagree with what Israel does to the Palestinians. And that does not make you anti Jewish or anti Semitic for that, you know, for all intents and purposes. So I do notice that, yes, these discussions tend to get more heated and more political, but I also know that the way I approach the subject is probably quite different from the way a lot of other people do. My first book was not political at all. The word Israel itself isn't featured once in the book, neither is the word occupation for that matter. And my intention there was to let our stories and our recipes speak for themselves. And I think there's a lot of different routes with which to arrive at the same destination. And My goal was to share a narrative that, like you started out this interview by saying, nobody really hears about, nobody really knows. You know, you hear Palestine, you hear Palestinian, you think conflict, you think occupation. What I want people to realize is there are a people behind these ideas, behind these stories that you see on the news. And there is a reason what's happening is happening. And, you know, get to know us better before you formulate an opinion about what's going on.
0: You grew up, from what I can tell, in, as you say, a mixed religion household mm. in Palestine that was sounds like it was middle class, and I think that's another thing that people don't understand about the Palestinian people, is that they associate Palestine with the refugee camps, mm. like they're the only things that you'll find in Palestine. And your story is very much a story of not being in a refugee camp, right? Talk about your path to writing your first book because it was not a linear path, right? It wasn't like, I am going to codify my three family tables recipes, you know? So talk about what happened before you ended up writing your first book.
2: If anything, and I was very much, I'm never going to even talk about my family's food. I'm going to run away from this small world that I live in and pursue a much bigger one. So I went to an American school in Jerusalem, and then I got into university here in the U.S. And I remember, you know, my father was very proud. I'd gotten into an Ivy League school, and he was sharing this with someone that we, uh, you know, ran into at one point. And he goes, are you seriously going to spend all that money to send your daughter to university in the U.S.? Don't you know she's going to end up in the kitchen the way all Arab women do anyway? Whoa. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's a stereotype. Not everyone thinks that way, but there are people who see that as, you know, an Arab woman's ultimate path. And that set off for me a, a very determined, uh, you know, mindset where there is no way I will ever be in the kitchen. I don't even want to cook, let alone, you know, get married and have a family and so on and so forth. So I went to, I did my undergrad at Wharton. I did my MBA straight after. I started working at McKinsey. I worked for the World Economic Forum. I did all these things that were ticking boxes, you know, doing all the right steps. And it wasn't until my first daughter was born that I really took a step back and thought, oh my God, what am I doing? Thank
0: (laughs) God you did that. That's a sentence a lifetime of working at McKinsey.
2: It's, it's, I mean, the story runs much further than that. I was miserable, but there, but it's, that's a whole other conversation. And then once she was born, she was born in London, and I thought, what are we doing? We're going to raise our kid away from anything that has ever meant something to us, you know, away from her family, from her roots, from this culture that has defined us throughout our lives. And I wanted to find a way to capture that for her. So I started compiling my family's recipes and stories and, you know, looking at them, initially I thought, well, yeah, these are my family's recipes, these are my family's stories, but if you take them together as a whole... They could really be the story of any Palestinian family. And that is a story that you don't hear about in the West. Mm -hmm. And that sparked the idea of doing this book and, you know, how it came to be is another adventure in and of itself.
0: Did your husband, who's also Palestinian, right, right, really say to you, well, if you could do anything you want, what would you be doing? And you were like, you know...
2: I, maybe I'd be writing about food. I still remember that so vividly. This was before our first daughter was even born in our very first apartment in London. And I, you know, even before leaving work, I was always questioning, what am I doing? What's the purpose? What's the point? And he's very matter-of-fact, very logical, and just goes, well, if it's what you want to be doing, why aren't you doing it? And of course, you know, being me, I put a thousand and one obstacles in my way, and I said, well, I've done this already, and, you know, it's a... Uh, what about all the time that I've spent and all the things that I've given to this career, I'm just going to dump it to risk it on something that might not materialize. And, you know, I don't have connections. I don't have contacts. I don't even know what to do. So, but you know, trusted Google came in and I Googled, how do you write a cookbook?
0: (laughs) And so you spent, it wasn't you spent a year or two, like working for McKinsey and other places. It was 10 years of your life, right? It was the first 10 years of your professional life
2: education through doing the cookbook was 10 years got it no I don't think I could have survived 10 years that was a lot
0: <laughs> I know I have an MBA and then I tried to have a regular job mm-hmm. working at an ad agency I went to Columbia and I like, oh you're a creative guy you should go work in an ad agency and then it was just like I hate this I can't do this another day. And then I wrote a piece about it, and it was like, I tried to have a normalcy transplant, and my body rejected it.
2: All us creatives, we're the ones that break the molds there, and we just, you know. Okay,
0: you Googled how to write a cookbook, and then you had to find an agent and write a proposal and all that. You know, that's something that a lot of people do, and I suppose it's a combination of both your talent and luck that got you your publishing contract?
2: I think it was a combination of factors. You know, I don't want to discount the value that my business background actually brought to this because I knew nothing about the food writing world, the cookbook world, but I definitely knew how to write proposals. So my cookbook proposal was over a hundred pages for a book that's 250 pages long. So Even though it's very unusual to have agents and publishers respond to cold queries, I think when you see that kind of manuscript or that kind of proposal in front of you, and my agent said this to me, he said, I saw the email that you wrote and I thought if she can even write that email, she can definitely write a book. So it was the quality of the product itself that I think opened some of those doors and there were definitely elements of luck because I had every single Thing that should have prevented me from doing this. You know, I don't have a platform. And some uh, people told me this, even literary consultants, you know, people who will review your proposal for a, a fee and tell you, we're like, oh, this is great. It's a masterpiece, but you're nobody. You don't have a restaurant. You don't have a blog. You don't have, you're not even on Instagram. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I wasn't on Instagram until we started the photo shoot for my first book. And were there books that
0: you imagined that influenced Your proposal, like what are the books that really made you think about what you wanted to do?
2: There were a lot of cookbooks coming out at the time that were for different regional cuisines, also by young authors. And I would go to bookstores and I would flip through these books. And I would look at the acknowledgement sections to figure out who their agents were and who their publishers were. And, you know, there was one called Mamushka, which was about Ukrainian food. There was another one called Five Quarters, which was written by a British lady but based in Italy. There was another one that was Indian. I think it was called Fresh India or something at the time. And, you know, I looked through these books and it was inspiring to see there were a lot of young women who... We're either leaving careers in one area and transitioning to this or writing cookbooks after having been, you know, working in kitchens for a long time. And it also altered the way I viewed the whole profession, because to me, I often viewed it with a slow brow perception. Yeah. Like business was cool. Finance was great. Everybody knows what that is. Food writing, like cookbooks, you know, it's a woman's thing. It's, you don't want to end up there. But, you know, thank God it's been a few years since. And my pers- yeah, it's kind of worked out. My perspective is getting a bit better.
0: And what about people that had written a lot about Middle Eastern cooking, like Claudia Roden or people like that? Were you aware of those people? And were you thinking, you know, in a way, it's like what Claudia did was cool, but I want to write a different kind of book.
2: I'm almost embarrassed to say how little I knew about that world. I didn't know most of these books at the time. Really? I mean, I knew Otolenghi because we ate at his deli. We lived down the street from it in London. But it was also part of the reason i wanted to write this book because my husband and i would you know we'd walk to hyde park we'd go into his shop and get a few things and i would think hey this is a lot of the same stuff we cook at home and like nobody knows that this is and obviously his partner sammy is palestinian and i was thinking, this is what we eat at home and it's you know nobody knows it's palestinian why isn't there a palestinian cookbook out there that puts these recipes and i thought these things they're serving they taste good But this is not even like, doesn't scratch the surface of the foods we eat at home that nobody knows about. You know, people know hummus and tabbouleh and grilled meats and some of the salads that were being served at some of these delis. And I wanted to show the world what the rest was and also show that it's Palestinian before, you know, you had another restaurant pop up and call it something else.
0: So we should all consider ourselves fortunate that parenthood, motherhood, food, and your distaste for the corporate world won out over everything else.
2: I think so. But, you know, (laughs) depends who you ask. I want to ask
0: you to read just a couple of paragraphs from page 11 from the Palestinian table, uh, which is the second two paragraphs. Because I think it sort of says a lot about your path.
2: I thought about all the years I had been calling my mother to ask cooking questions. I had heard stories, learned recipes, and spoken to people inside my family and out. Here I was now with recipes from my mother, grandmothers, aunts, neighbors, friends, and relatives. Recipes from neighborhoods, villages, and cities. And with every recipe, there was a story, a snapshot of life, history, and family. In my mind, they came together to tell the often overlooked narrative of a country and its people. I concluded that those recipes did not belong to my family alone. They were foods tied to different seasons and events, to sadness and joy, to times of peace and times of war. They were a Palestinian chronicle, a tale of identity, and I wanted to give them back by sharing them with the world and using them as a bridge to better understand Palestinian culture, food, and way of life.
0: Those two paragraphs really say a lot about what the book is about. I couldn't ask you to paraphrase because those two paragraphs are so strong.
2: No, it's great. I mean, I haven't read those paragraphs in so long. I actually, I'm glad you asked me to read them again. It reminded me, you know, of (laughs) of writing and what I was thinking at the time.
0: You talk also about the three women Mm -hmm. and you describe them. They're almost characters in the book. Talk a little bit about those three women.
2: So we'll start with the oldest, which is my paternal grandmother who has passed away. She passed away when I was a child, and she was a very formidable woman. You know, she went through so much in her life. She was the very first girl in her town to actually go to school, secondary school, and it was all boys at the time. She was the only girl that was allowed in, and they had to sew a skirt around her desk so that nobody could see her legs sitting at the table. And, you know, it's small stories like that that you hear about her. And you know the kind of strength that she endured. She was there through you know, the war of nineteen forty eight and there was just so much in her and still, in spite of everything she experienced, all the trauma, all the suffering, she was a woman who wanted to give love to her family and she did that through food. You know, in other ways she was a very, you know, life had hardened her on the inside, but when you tasted her food, you felt there was a part of her that was still alive that was coming out in those dishes. My maternal grandmother, very different life. You know, she, when I think of her, I think of something warm and cuddly. Women didn't express emotion as much maybe as they do today. Both of my grandmothers were not women that I ran to and got cuddled by. But when I think of my maternal grandmother, I think of someone who also showed love through her cooking. You know, when we went there on Fridays, she'd be up from the crack of dawn, kneading and baking bread, fresh bread, to make us specific dishes. And when I'd come home from university, she would cook the foods that she knew I loved the most. And even if they weren't women of many words or many physical, you know, signs of affection, their food was the way that they expressed it. My mother, I grew up with her and she was the one that chewed me out of the kitchen all the time and that said, go away from food. Don't come near the kitchen. Go study. Go work. And... Right now she's my biggest supporter in what I do. You know, when I call her and I say, "What am I doing? What have I done? Why did I leave my job and now I'm doing this thankless thing?" And and she's the one that reminds me again of why it's important and why what I'm doing now leaves a legacy as opposed to, you know, any other job I could be doing which wouldn't have the same impact. So
0: I would argue that it's not thankless, Reem. It's thankful.
2: I'm saying it much more now than I did at the beginning and <laughs>
0: So there's one more paragraph I want you to read, which is the last paragraph on page 13 of the Palestinian table.
2: One of the few things I regret about living abroad is that my own daughters won't get to enjoy the same kind of slow lifestyle with a bevy of aunts, grandmothers, and family cooks coming together around a Palestinian family table, laden with food steeped in laughter and conversation, and boasting the stories and knowledge of generations. Through the recipes and stories in this book, however, I hope that they can carry our history, our food, our culture, and our home wherever they go in the world and never be too far away from a Palestinian table.
0: Again, it sums things up rather nicely. So if there were three basic tenets of Palestinian cooking, what would they be?
2: So number one, we touched on it already, generosity. You know, The portions are big, they're eaten family style, and they're meant to be shared. You know, they're meant to feed crowds and, you know, you take pride in being able to feed others. The second one, I would say, is quality ingredients, very close to nature. So unlike today where you go to the supermarket and you don't know where what you're getting has come from, most of Palestinian food traditionally were things that you grew yourself, your neighbors grew, you went and harvested them in the mountains, they were, you know, the goats and sheep that you raised or the eggs from the chickens that you were taking care of. And then finally, the last one I would say, flavor. Flavor is important. It's and it's multi-dimensional, right? It's not just salty. It's salty and sour. It's not just sour, but it has elements of sweet, like pomegranate molasses. Za'atar is salty, but it's acidic, but it's also crunchy, and you know, it's all these different elements of flavor that come together to give you something really good.
0: It's interesting because you know people used to always try to distinguish between what's just cooking and what's a cuisine. The last thing you talked about, the layers of flavor and texture are often what, in the old days, okay, so now it's a cuisine, but it obviously is a cuisine, you know, it's like because it's of the culture.
2: Yes, but also the very idea of national cuisine is just a recent construct in general. I mean, food is regional, right? It's what you cooked in specific regions with specific things you had available, And then with the rise of the nation state, you start seeing this trend towards galvanizing nationalism around food.
0: It's impossible to read the Palestinian table and the Arabesque table without thinking about the most recent manifestation of the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. How do you connect those dots? I mean, it must be something that is always on your mind, and how do you make sense of it, given, you know, the level of hostility and the extremism coming from Israel and also certain parts of Hamas.
2: How do you make sense of that? When I live here, there are many times where it's hard to make sense of what's going on because I feel so helpless. I am in a position of privilege where I'm living abroad and yes, I look at what I do and I am trying to give a voice to Palestinians by talking about our food and our culture and I use this term very figuratively, but like fighting the battle on a different field. But when things like the latest round of, you know, what happened back home, I start to think, well, what's the point of what I do? It starts to feel pointless. And, you know, while everything was happening, I wasn't posting even anything on Instagram. I just had no desire to do so. I tried to remember some of the things that you just made me read in this book about why am I doing the work that I do. And I think realizing that also gave me this sense of hope or this encouragement to keep going because there are so many people in so many different fields, not just food, whether it be food or art or music or literature that are sharing stories which people can connect to. And as a result of building that connection and understanding more, you're more open to learning about a situation from the different angles. And in so doing, you know, be an ally, for lack of a better word, on a journey to bring equality and justice to Palestinians.
0: I think you're saying that food is obviously not a big part of what we hope will be a solution, but it can play a small part, shining light on Palestinian cuisine and Arab cuisine, I don't think it's pointless. It's obviously not going to be the thing that stops the conflict, but I don't think it's pointless.
2: No, I mean, food is the lowest common denominator we all share, you know, regardless of where we come from, what our experiences or backgrounds or socioeconomic status, religion, etc. We all have to eat. Yeah, yeah. And on some level, even if you cannot relate to someone on anything, you can still relate to those feelings you get when you eat food prepared by someone who loves you or someone who, you know, cares about you. And those things can help you at least start the conversation from a place of some kind of understanding.
1: We'll
0: be back with part two of our conversation with Reem Cassis. But first, let's check in with Kenji. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is the author of The Food Lab, the host of Kenji's Cooking Show on YouTube. time to check in with kenji lopez alt that's j kenji lopez alt the author of the food lab and the host of kenji's cooking show on youtube and finally the author of every night is pizza night hey kenji so what's happening
1: oh not much you know just uh trying to beat the heat out here
0: yeah how hot was it out there
1: That's actually, it's been very nice recently, so its I can't really complain. It was the hottest day in recorded history last Monday, 110 in Seattle. And like in my house where there's no AC and we have some big windows that catch all the sunlight, it's not fun.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's insane. And you said that your office is on the third floor, so it gets even hotter because all the hot air rises.
1: Yeah, 120 in here. It was not fun. My daughter's fish were casualties of the heat, actually.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you really have to sleep in the basement because it was so hot?
1: We did. Yeah, and we slept in the basement for a few days.
0: <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I've been talking to Reem Kassis who wrote two great books, one called The Palestinian Table, the other called The Arabesque Table. Mm-hmm and you and i have had many great middle eastern meals and i know that you're particularly fond of falafel and that you had a recipe and a segment on Kenji's cooking show about falafel.
1: Yeah, i do. You know, falafel is one of those dishes that, you know, as you've said, it's popular all over the arab world and there's also a lot of debate about where it comes from and it stylistically it changes depending on where you're going and i think in that falafel video i mentioned that this particular recipe i'd learned it from our friend Ainat, Ainat Admani. And she makes an Israeli-style falafel. And I think I called it Israeli-style even in in the video. And I did it, I think, in retrospect, in a sort of insensitive way. You know, I I should have mentioned more strongly that, hey, this is just this particular style I'm making. I'm not trying to claim that falafel is inherently an Israeli dish because it isn't. It's eaten all over the Arab world. (laughs) So I got myself into a little trouble there, I think.
0: That always happened whenever we posted, whenever Max Falkowitz or somebody would post about any aspect of Middle Eastern food and Israeli food in particular. It's like the floodgates open to controversy.
1: Mm-hmm. Understandably. And it's, it's difficult to navigate that and stuff.
0: So what did you find out in your falafel exploration?
1: I basically learned to do it the way that Chef Einat does it at Taim. The real trick, of course, is to not cook the chickpeas. When I was younger, I used to try and make falafel, and I would do it with canned chickpeas. And when you do it with canned chickpeas, the chickpeas have already been cooked, and so the starch in them has already sort of been activated, so they don't bind properly. And so when you do that, what happens is you make your balls and you try and drop them into the oil and they end up dissolving and falling apart and just turning into kind of mud in the bottom of the frying oil. And so what I used to do was like, all right, well, like maybe I'll add a little bit of flour or cornstarch to bind it and that would work. But then you end up with these super dense falafel. And so the real trick is to get dried chickpeas, soak them overnight and then grind them with a ton of herbs. I like doing them with a ton of herbs. So you grind them with a ton of herbs in a food processor and then you want to get them to sort of like making like, peppers, or like, a, like a pie crust, you know, where It looks a little bit mealy and chunky, but it just barely holds together when you squeeze it in your hand. So that's sort of the stage you're aiming for. And then you squeeze it together and then you can fry it. It's completely uncooked until it goes into the oil. And then the chickpea pieces, when you do it that way, it ends up sort of light and fluffy almost. And the chickpea retains some texture. It's a much, much better way to do it than to do the canned chickpeas with added flour method. Unless you really like dense, mushy falafel, which I don't think most people do.
0: We are back with author Reem Kassis. Her new book, The Arabesque Table, Contemporary Recipes from the Arab World, is out. So tell us about the thought process that led you to The Arabesque Table.
2: So The Palestinian Table, I thought, would be my first and last book, right? It was the book that I had in me. It was about my family and my culture and our cuisine and so on and so forth. But soon after it came out, I was being asked all these questions in interviews about the difference between Palestinian and Lebanese and Syrian cuisine and the issues of appropriation and topics that I hadn't delved deeply into before. And then once I started going down this rabbit hole of food history, I realized how skewed our perception of food and time and cuisine in general is. And so I thought, you know what, okay, I'm going to write a book that really captures A modern Arab table like this is what we eat at home it's different from what my grandmother's ate and look at how living abroad and traveling has changed the way everybody eats and interacts but the more I started learning about all this history that I'm telling you about the more I realized that history needs to feature in this book if it's to have integrity because there's a lot of books that come out and they're you know claiming to be one national cuisine or another but they're fusion at best and fusion is not wrong it's the entire history of cuisine is a history of fusion, but you need to call something by what it is. And even when my publisher asked, she said like, "How is this book different from other books out there? How is it different from your first book?" And I said to her, "Honest, that's how it's different. It's not claiming to be something it's not. It's telling you I'm modern recipes, but I'm going to explain to you why and how I got to this point." You know, I'm not going to be a Palestinian cookbook with I don't know some rose-inspired donuts or whatever cake and just call it Palestinian because I feel like it because I'm Palestinian, no. It's going to be honest and explain the history and the trajectory and how food really is.
1: I think you actually did
0: that very well in the introduction. You actually broke it down to six things. I'd like you to talk about those six things.
2: So the taste of home, this was, I mean, that part of the introduction I wrote actually at the very end when my photo shoot was canceled and I started to understand that so much of food is really inherently tied to memory for us. You know, I started to understand better why there were certain dishes my father loved so much and why there are certain dishes that mean so much to me and it's because of how they are tied to our past. I had originally started the intro with the second thing you talk about, which is what is home? Because I think of my life today and I have now spent more time living outside of Jerusalem than I did living inside it. But still I refer to it as home. And I always wonder like, what will my daughters call home? What does that notion even mean? And in some ways food helps us maybe form some kind of vision or identity around a place when we're far removed from it. And I wanted to capture that as well. But to understand that, you also need to understand what is this national cuisine thing that I'm talking about? You know, what is this sense that gives us a sense of home, regardless of where we are in the world? And national cuisine, they'll get it. They'll say, oh, Italian, Indian, Palestinian, whatever, it's a national cuisine, but it's actually new. Before the French Revolution, you didn't call your cuisine by a name of a nation. It was, you know, from this region, or it was a peasant food, or nobility food, or royal food, or whatnot. And then you start to see the rise of the nation state and these nation states building a sense of identity around food. You know, To this day, Italian cuisine is very regional. Neapolitan and Roman cuisine probably argue about what they make just as much as Israelis and Palestinians do. But to the world, it's Italian cuisine. So it was important to explain that concept to people so that you start to see things in perspective. You start to see why our lens of 150, 200 years doesn't make any sense.
0: You wrote a great paragraph On page 11 of the new book, which is what I believe humans share, which sort of addresses this issue.
2: What I believe humans share above all else, however, is the desire for connection and belonging. And at the end of the day, that's what food is about. Inviting someone to eat at your table is a very intimate act, an expression of love. You are welcoming them into your life and sharing with them not only a meal, but the history and stories the meal holds. That was exactly what I attempted to do with the first book, The Palestinian Table.
0: What's interesting there is, again, you talk about the desire for connection and belonging. But here you're talking about that that desire is universal. It goes not just across the Arab world, but across the world, right? Exactly. 100%. And then the next one, you talk about history a little bit, which I thought was really interesting. So talk a little bit about what you call a word on history.
2: So here I just wanted to explain how far back the history of Arab cuisine goes, right? Our part of the world, the Fertile Crescent, is basically considered the cradle of civilizations. And I wanted to, in, I guess, two, three paragraphs, kind of explain how we got to the point that we got to today and why Arab cuisine is so rich. And it's rich because of this history of Trade and migration and culinary diffusion. And I wanted to set aside this notion that fusion is bad. No, fusion is our history. The history of Arab cuisine and every cuisine in the world is a history of interaction with other cultures and learning along the way. Mm -hmm. So that's what the history section was about. And then the word on terminology, (laughs) this one, I put it in at the end because... Someone asked me, you know, they said, what do you mean when you say you're writing a book on Middle Eastern cooking? And I said, well, of course, Arabic food. That's what I mean. And I realized people don't actually know that. To them, the word Middle East, and it's a problem of people facing the social sciences in general, the terminology can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The word itself, Middle East, is problematic in the sense that it's a Eurocentric term. It's the British Empire calling us the Middle East relative to the farthest east part of their empire, which was India at the time. So we were in the middle, we became the Middle East. What is it that actually unites this area that I talk about? It's the acculturation under Arab and Islamic rule for centuries. You know, it's the 22 countries, from the Arabian Gulf to the Atlantic Sea. And that was what I wanted to explain in terms of why I'm referring to our food as Arabic, why I'm talking about Arab cuisine, why I'm avoiding the use of the term Middle East in the title, in the subtitle. Inevitably, throughout the book, it features because sometimes you need to express it and there's no other term for it at this point.
0: It's interesting because it wasn't until I read your explanation that I even knew where the term Middle East comes from and how Western-centric it is. You know, it's like, well, Middle East to whom?
2: Right, if you're in Japan, we're not the Middle East.
0: (laughs) And then finally you talk about the Arabesque table. And again, there's a great first paragraph in that section that I wish you would read on the top of page 14.
2: Having spent the better part of the last three years researching Arabic food, I see just how intertwined the roots of cuisine across the world are and how heavily we influence each other over the course of history. The truth is, the past of the Arab world has not always been peaceful. The rise and fall of empires has left no one in the region unscathed, but our cuisine has emerged stronger and richer as a result. It is a cuisine predicated on hospitality and whose ingredients and dishes chart the changing face of a region that has existed since the dawn of civilization and whose sphere of influence has reached every corner of the world. Kind
0: of hard to argue with.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of hard to find a name to convey all that, but that's why I like that section, the whole bit about the name. So give us
0: three great examples of recipes from the Arabesque table that sort of successfully do what you set out to do which was connect the past to the present and maybe even the future.
2: Mm. So there's one recipe called nargesiya. I believe it's in the eggs and dairy chapter. And this is straight out of a 10th century Arabic cookbook. But if you go to that cookbook and you look at the ingredients, they're very hard to come across today. They use tail fat instead of olive oil to fry the meat. They pound it instead of using it ground. They use roux, a certain herb that is not readily available in supermarkets today. And so I altered the ingredients while sticking as much as possible to the original version or how they would have seen it at the time to make something that was eaten 10 centuries ago still accessible today. So that was a very clear case of like very old recipe here's how it fits today.
0: What would it be most like in a western cuisine? Like what's in it?
2: It's a breakfast dish of eggs and ground beef and fava beans. So it's the closest thing probably to a, you know an egg a potato and egg hash where you're using you know beans and meat instead of the potatoes and the eggs are fried whole.
0: It's an Arab world brunch recipe.
2: Basically and the name is interesting because it means narcissus, which is daffodil, the daffodil flower. And it's, you know, white and yellow and green, which is the colors of that flower.
0: All right, so there's one.
2: Then there's another one, which uh, I think this one speaks to how cuisine can be influenced by other cultures throughout time. There's a recipe for an eggplant dish. I ate at a friend's house, she's Thai. She later on ended up opening up her own restaurant, which is done exceptionally well. She took a whole eggplant which she had steamed, I believe. And then she topped it with shrimp and chicken and peanuts and egg and coriander. And it was these delicious flavors. And I thought to myself, my goodness, you know, we claim to have over 40 recipes for this single vegetable, this eggplant. And yet here's a way that we've never considered using it. And so I took ingredients that were common to Arab cuisine. You know, instead of coriander, I used parsley. Instead of the shrimp and the peanuts, I used pine nuts and chicken. And for the spicing, it was sumac and onions and so on and so forth. And so I gave this Arabic flavor to a dish that was inspired by someone who's Thai. And this speaks to how Arabs were trading across the world and traveling the silk route. It was these kinds of experiences that led to a change in the dishes and the techniques and ingredients that we have in our cuisine. Can you find the page for me? It is in the eggplant chapter. The picture is on page 70, and the recipe is on page 68. And what is it called in the book? Broiled eggplant salad with sumac, chicken, and pine nuts.
0: Got it. Okay, you have one more. This
2: is probably one of the desserts, actually. I would say either the tahina cheesecake or the cardamom coffee tiramisu, which are in this case straight up Western desserts. There's no arguing with it. You know, it's a New York cheesecake or it's an Italian tiramisu, but here we are putting Arab flavors in it. And it's again, another case of here's how, what happens when cultures meet together and something new comes out of it.
0: Yeah. It seems like you've really opened up Pandora's box. Now you can write like 10 more books about the Arabesque table.
2: Don't tell my mother that. She, every time she's like, "Last photo shoot you do at my house," so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really funny. We've talked a little bit about this, but I think one of the points of the arabesque table is that food can play a small role in getting people to think differently about Palestinians. The, you know the conflict between Palestine and Israel and the entire Arab world. How specifically do you think can it help?
2: I've been asked, what do you, you know, what do you think about food diplomacy? And I always say it's naive to think that food is going to solve any of the issues we have on the ground. What's happening on the ground in Palestine and Israel, it's a lot bigger than just a plate of shared food. But I think this is not sustainable. The situation on the ground cannot stay the way it is. What has happened over the last few years has made you know the possibility of a two-state solution unfeasible at this point. And I think we're heading, and again, not to get too political, but I think we're heading towards a situation where we're going to have to have a single state where everybody has equal rights and justice for everyone in a single state. When and if that does happen, I think the role that food plays is just bridging the gap more than anything. You know, if there are people that you don't know or cultures that you're not familiar with, sharing a plate of food is sometimes just a way to break the ice, to create a shared or mutual understanding. But is food itself going to solve the problem? No. All right, you know, people are always like, oh, kumbaya, let's share a plate of hummus and break bread. But I am always, you know, if I'm ever involved in an event and someone wants to call it breaking bread, I'm like, no, please, no, do not call it breaking bread. It's just, it gives this, it's a very naive perception of, yeah, we share food, then everything gets better. It doesn't. You, have to, you really have to get to the crux of the issues. You really ha- you know, you can't put a band aid and expect the infection underneath to go away.
0: It's interesting that you, and it's not particularly relevant to food, but it is relevant to life, you really do think that the two state solution is doomed. Is that because of the extremism that has risen on both sides?
2: No, it's because, I mean, if you look at the map and you see what has happened to historic Palestine was this entire country, right? And then you see the West Bank is this kidney-shaped portion to the right, and Gaza is this little flag-shaped portion to the left at the bottom. And the settlements, the illegal settlements that have been coming up over the last couple of decades, they've essentially made the West Bank impossible to you know, exist as an independent country. And also, how, what kind of country has a, diff- a third country in between it? It's just geographically, Israel has made the possibility of a two-state solution unrealistic, mostly through settlements. Yeah. You know, the extremism that you see rising, and we see it everywhere. We see it here in the U.S., and it's, that has a different solution. You know, this is not, I'm talking more from a geopolitical standpoint. It's not feasible now.
0: You're talking about macro solutions rather than...
2: Yeah, Yeah, on the individual level, yes. So what's next,
0: Reem, what does your mom want you to do? And then what do you want to do?
2: My mom wants me to relax and stop running. But what I want to do, you know, I think what I've learned from having done these two books is that what resonates is the stories. Food is a wonderful way to tell stories, but what I want to keep doing down the line is continuing to share the narratives of, you know, Palestinians and Arabs and more generally through the different stories that I tell. That can be through food. It can be through narrative nonfiction. You know, I've written fiction stories before as well that I've published, but I think the important part is just building and creating more of that human understanding that comes by reading and learning about other people's stories. Sorry to be super vague. No, you should write a memoir. You told Kenji to write a science book and look how well that went, so now I'm inclined to follow your advice. A memoir on what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) After I sold Sirius Eats, I wrote a memoir, so I like. I'm always encouraging people to write memoirs.
2: But I'm like, hey, who wants to read about my life? But thank you for thinking that it's interesting enough. <laughs> now I'm
0: going to ask you a few questions that I ask all special sauce guests. So, who's at your desert island dinner? No family allowed, because when we allowed family, like everyone would say, my kids, my parents, and that's and. So these could be people you think would be great to share a meal with. They could be artists, politicians, poets. They could be actors. They could be musicians. You get four people at your table.
2: Oh, four people. They
0: can be living or dead.
2: I would say Mahmoud Darwish. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He was the preeminent Palestinian poet. He died a few years ago, and he's written a lot about just the history and the plight of Palestinians through poetry. And that to me is very... I'm a person of words, so I like that.
0: Yeah, okay.
2: Probably Maya Angelou as well. It's a, becoming an eclectic bunch, I realize that. Well, that's the whole idea. <laughs> uh, musicians, I would really like Fairuz. She's a Lebanese singer. So she would set the mood. She, you know, her, her music is really associated with my childhood. It's, it's what we listen to uh, throughout you know all our road trips and all our drives and at home.
0: Was she a Lebanese pop musician or more of a folk musician?
2: She's a traditional musician. She's still alive. She's much older now. She's in her eighties. But you know, there's nobody across the Arab world who doesn't know her. You know, it's her and Um Kulthum who are like the two giants of Arab music. So those three, and I'm trying to think who's a fourth person that would not you know rock the boat if we brought it into the... <laughs>
0: We don't mind if they rock the boat.
2: I'm feeling like I should probably put a politician in there somewhere, but it's sad to say, you know, I mean, the only politician in Arab history that all Arabs agree with someone to aspire to was Jamal Abdel Nasser, who was Egypt's president at the time, and he really instilled a sense of nationalism in people. So yeah, why not? We'll invite him as well. All right. I'm realizing most of my people are dead at this point. Um, I don't know what that says about the world I live in if I can't think of someone alive today that i do ring to my desert island.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. It's a great table, man. I, I'd like to be at that table.
2: I was, I was like, Ed, I should invite you. But I figured you probably don't want me to put that on the list.
0: So it's just been declared Reem Cassis Day all over the world. What's happening on that day?
2: Wow. Everybody's sitting with their kids at the dinner table and nobody's running around taking their kids to all kinds of activities that the kids don't want to be at just to run in this rat race called parenting in the Western world today. Sorry, you can tell I have a lot on my mind.
0: (laughs) That's all right. That's good. So they're just, they're sitting,
2: eating, talking. I think it would be families across the world getting together, different generations, sharing a meal. To me, it's just, I see there's so much loss of this appreciation and respect for older generations that I see my parents used to have for theirs and their parents had for theirs. And today it's all about me, 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 and you know what works for my life and my career. And we're losing some of these bonds that made the relationships between our elders and our parents and grandparents so sacred. So it would be a day where that was the number one priority, especially for us younger people.
0: And do you worry for your daughters that they're missing out on a lot of that because of the geographic distance between you and your family?
2: I do. I do. And it weighs on me a lot. And I talk about this with my husband all the time. And we used to say, you know, if there is ever in our lifetime, a one-state solution where it is feasible to live back home, we would go back. You know, career-wise right now for both of us, it makes more sense to be here. And my husband's family also lives here, so it helps. But It's so different to live in a place where you don't have to question what the word home means, where you feel like your ancestors are literally coming out of the ground that you're living on to embrace you versus here. Who do I have here in this suburban town in Pennsylvania that I've just been in for less than a year? Wow. And it's hard to find roots when you move around so much. And i that's what I worry about. They're missing a lot. On the other hand, I feel I struggle more because I grew up with these roots and I don't feel them here. Whereas maybe for my daughters, if since they've grown up from day one like this, they won't struggle with it as much. So who knows?
0: Do you get a sense that they struggle with this issue or they're like, I got my mom, I got my dad, I got my friends, I go to school and that's the way we roll.
2: I think they struggle a bit. You know, we spend the summers back in Jerusalem with my parents. And even when we were living in London before, my parents would come and visit frequently. It was closer and easier. And every time we separate, we go back or my parents leave, my daughters go through like a withdrawal period almost. They don't want to talk to my parents on Skype. They're mad at them because they've left. Wow. Or it hurts them to see them and realize like, I cannot be with you. They've been talking about this trip that we're taking next month for the last six months to go visit my parents. So they definitely feel it.
0: Yeah, it weighs upon them.
2: It weighs, and it weighs upon all of us. I think I I wrote, you know, you made me read a paragraph that talks about how we crave connection, and yet we live these individualistic lives. And those two things are at odds. I don't think it's good for the human condition to live this way, but it's the nature of life these days, and I don't know what the solution is.
0: So if special sauce could grant you one superpower, Reem, Mm. what would that superpower be?
2: You know what my daughter's answer always is, and it's very smart. She says, my superpower would be that whatever superpower I think of in the minute, I'd be able to acquire it. So that's kind (laughs) of... She's very smart. I was like, oh, I like that one. But I assume you want me to be less of a lawyer than she is and actually pick one thing.
0: (laughs) She's the youngest lawyer in Pennsylvania, right?
2: Probably at this point. Yeah, she's seven. I mean, if I could have one power, it would be to know what the person across from me is thinking.
0: Because that's the key to progress, right? Yeah. Well, that's succinct, and, and I think you're right. Well, Reem Kassiz, thank you so much for sharing your special sauce with us. Both of Reem's books, The Palestinian Table and The Arabesque Table, Contemporary Recipes, from the Arab world are worthy of any serious eater's attention. It really was a pleasure to get to know you, even if it's via Zoom.
2: Thank you, Ed. It was a great pleasure for me, too. This was a fun conversation. That's it for this
0: episode of Special Sauce. Thanks to Reem Kassis and, of course, my old running partner, Kenji Lopez-Alt. We'll be back in two weeks with another brand new episode. In the meantime, please stay safe and healthy serious eaters, get vaccinated, and practice social distancing when necessary. And again, I urge you to do everything you can to support your local restaurants and the purveyors to supply them. The pandemic has wreaked havoc on the restaurants we all know and love. Though the pandemic may be abating, many restaurants are still suffering from its devastating effects. If you can donate to our recent guest Nina Compton's GoFundMe campaign for the restaurants of her native St. Lucia, Chefs Helping Chefs and Restaurants, do so or give to worthy organizations like No Kid Hungry, or Feeding America, both of which combat the food insecurity an estimated 54 million Americans are grappling with during the pandemic. And if you've enjoyed listening to Reem Cassis, and Kenji and want more special sauce in your life, just subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's the best part. It's free. To help spread the word, you could even review special sauce on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. So long, serious eaters. See you next time.
1: Special Sauce is produced by John Kalish and Ed Levine, associate producer Morgan Flannery. Our theme music was composed by Charlie Morrow for Morrow Sound.
0: This episode of special sauce is brought to you by u.s bank if you're anything like me you're thinking about food all the time one day i'm craving texas barbecue the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery And two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash Altitude Go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply.
2: From